yourself in the sensitive state you're in. Otherwise, we tend to we never know quite why things are happening and why we feel the way we do because we never observed and really kind of get confused by the experiences of life. We tend to blame it on uh, people or life or ourselves. That in this way, we're we're investigating, examining, watching. These words are very significant in Buddhism. Uh, the Buddha always encouraged this examination, looking into, investigation. Because then you're using your mind. You're you're to you're not just using it as a kind of memory bank to kind of acquire data, but and uh, to be able to regurgitate it when necessary, you're actually developing wisdom. It's through, through actually using your mind by looking into, watching, listening, observing, that you understand. <clears throat> and even though in the West we tend to think we do this, actually, so much of our learning is is just um, more, more developing a rational mind, reason and logic, rather than uh, that kind of investigative, intuitive awareness. We, we tend to have, have elevated rational thinking, logic, to such a high degree that, that uh, and we've given that the kind of preference as the kind of ultimate human attainment. But it fails us, doesn't it, when we deal with life's problems, with the sensitivity of our existence. Uh, being logical and reasonable does not help you deal with uh, emotional stress or the sensitive state you're in. Uh, uh, you, might, you might be able to to uh, kind of analyze it, but not really understand it. Now the question arises for many of you, I'm sure, about how to practice when you leave this retreat, because this of course, here it's, uh, as I was saying at the beginning, spoon-fed. You're all in the high chair, and we're just feeding you spoonful by spoonful. It's all, all uh, special, uh, controlled situation. Then you go back to your daily life. One thing is you'll find going back to where you live, and and how easy it is to just go back into habitual patterns. Because like a home or a place you live in, you get used to it. The, the people you live with, you get used to them. And, and then the, this, uh, one can just kind of go along being used to things. And it makes us quite heedless, not very much aware. It's oftentimes when things disrupt or kind of go against the grain and kind of go against what we're used to that we have to startle us and maybe frighten us or threaten us. But in those moments, we tend to awaken to things. We have to, what, what's happening? In a retreat like this, it's, it's going against the grain of habit, isn't it? You're not used to sitting for long periods of time or being silent or, or uh, you know, watching your breath. Or this kind of thing. They're not used to walking meditation. They're not, this is not something that that has become a habit or something that uh, that is has just become perfunctory for you. So you're you're going against what you you're used to doing, but not to just go against things, but to to observe and witness what's taking place. Is when there's some kind of friction, you have to go against what you, what you want to do or, or what you're used to. Then there's a certain amount of there's a 
there's frustration, there's irritation, there's this kind of, of uh, experience in which we can observe. Because in those situations we have to, to get out of just our, we have to, we not just can't sink into the momentum of habit, but we have to kind of rise up to the, the situation and, and the aim, of course, of this retreat is to follow the instructions to, to um, do the practice which is going against maybe what you're, what you're used to doing. So how to integrate it in daily life? Well, the, of course, the easiest thing to do is to just forget it and just go back to the old habits. <laughs> but also, there's the you know, a, a longing to integrate, to be able to use this in, in life, uh, think, and not see it as just a, a kind of special situation that you can only do when you come to Amravati or go on a meditation retreat. For one thing, I recommend that you, th- that every day you do some Anapanasati. Try to make time, go to, it's always good if you can to have a room set aside, like a little shrine room, if you can, if you can do that. Some place that you, that's not just like your bedroom, or because bedrooms are dangerous. <laughs> you, they suggest all kinds of things, and uh, so uh, a a little special shrine room is is a kind of place that you set aside for practicing uh, meditation. And that I find very uh, helpful so that you, you, you're, not, you're not getting used to it in terms of just, you know, resting and sleeping, but you're, you're seeing it as a place where, that when you go in there, you, it's a place that suggests meditation, quiet, silence the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, just the, those things, those kind of symbols, like have a Buddha image or picture or something there that, that kind of conveys to you what you're, what you're supposed to be doing. It kind of encourages that. Because it does affect us. If we're in, um, like say for example, um, the sala in over here in the, the main building is, is. I remember when we first came here, it was a, it was the old school's dining hall, and it had a definite atmosphere of a, of a dining hall of a children's school, and we used to have meetings in there, and it was, and it, uh, you know, it didn't, the atmosphere wasn't all that good, uh, and. Uh, and then over the years, the nine years that we've been here, and then we've we've kind of put the ima- the Buddha image and and tried to to uh, refurbish the place so that so that the atmosphere is one that when you go in there, you you the suggestions to the mind are there. So I find like in the morning when we usually the chant the morning puja at five in the morning in the sala, and it's just for me I go in there and I sit down, the mind is snaps right in. Concentration. <laughs> and because I've been doing it for years, and, and, the, and that particular setting, those images, and the, the, that suggests that to me. I find it a little more difficult to do that in my room, where there's a bed, and there's a desk, and there's books, and things that that they, you know, your letters to write, and and uh, and even though there's a shrine in my my room, uh, it doesn't have the same same thing because uh, the, the the there's also these other suggestions that you can lie down and you can read a book. Well, the, the the shrine or the 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 shrine itself, like in the sala. You don't go there to lie down ever or read a book. I've never gone to that cellar to to go and sleep or to read a book. Just 
those suggestions just don't arise there. I'm just noting how things affect the mind. Like here in this 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 room has got a, quite a good atmosphere now because it was this was a a children's dormitory. The beds. <laughs> 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 And this was, uh, uh, but now they've have, had in meditation retreats there for years and, and uh, so forth, so that it does have, it has a kind of atmosphere, an ambience that, that helps a lot in, in concentrating the mind, in silence and in the suggestions that help toward moving towards that or inclining to that. Then to designate a time, for example, to say 15, 20 minutes of mindfulness of the breath, just to kind of exercise your mind. I like to look at Anapanasati as a mental exercise, like one would exercise the body to give it strength and a good health. And then you're, you're actually mental exercises to, to develop a concentrated mind, to and it takes quite a while to develop it. Like you expect one meditation retreat, expect to get, to have a, a really high level of samadhi and, and keep it. But uh, over the years, it it accumulates. One's level ability to concentrate gets better and better as you as you do it little by little, day by day. So don't think even when you know even sometimes you feel you're not getting anywhere. Or, or your samadhi is terrible, or you can't do it. Don't believe that. It's the mind complaining and and uh, grumbling as usual. So don't believe that kind of mind. Just keep going and doing it. It's like, and after a while, it becomes very easy. Like learning a foreign language or a musical instrument. It's it's just you do it. Keep practicing, and after a while, it becomes automatic, spontaneous. That. At first, it's all hard work and and not very much fun, and it's kind of clumsy, and and uh, you can really feel great despair when you, you know, when you start learning to play a musical instrument, and and uh, you keep thinking, I'll never be able to play a musical instrument. Then you go and listen to a, go to a concert and hear a professional pianist, and you think. Oh, wonderful that they can play. I'll never be able to play. And you get totally despairing about yourself because after two piano lessons, <laughs> but if you keep practicing, you know, the, and and don't and and learn how to make determinations that you can keep. Like when you're enthusiastic about meditation, you know, I'm going to practice two hours every day in the morning, two hours in the evening, and uh, I'm going to practice walking meditation every day, and uh, I'm going to, you make these uh, fantastic uh, determinations because you're enthusiastic. You know, when you think, I'm going to want to get my practice together and really do it, and give up the world and all the rest. That's when you're inspired. And then you can do that maybe for a few days, and then, <laughs> and then the inspiration turns to more like exasperation or desperation, and uh, and then you then you kind of give up altogether. So it's better to to establish your practice around a level that you can that's that's works for you that you can actually do that you succeed at, because it's important to. To be able to to succeed at this, to be able to to do something well, and otherwise you, you just feel despair in in doing it. So if you set your goals too high and overestimate yourself, you end up you know maybe able to keep it going for a couple of days and then can't do it at all. You give up totally. So that's why I set your goals in in ways that you can actually you know, develop it day by day, gradually, over a period of time. Lung Po Cha used to say, when people would say, oh, I, my practice is not any good, he says, 
good practice, not so good practice, it's all good. Because we're not after, it doesn't matter whether you, you're practicing, you know, you're really getting concentrated and, and getting the silence and, and all that, or you, maybe you sit down and your just mind's all over the place and, and it's just restless and you're miserable and in pain. Uh, see both of, as both va- as of equal value. So that you're not, you know, learn how to, to kind of accept both. For some days meditation is, is just very nice. Just sit there and your mind concentrates and you feel it. Then the next day you go in and your mind is wandering and or you're not feeling very good or whatever. And, and then you, you think, oh, I can't, you know, you, you, you complain about it. But an attitude that is more useful and than just trying to do what you have called good practice or what is pleasant, regard both both as of equal value because one learns a lot from the misery of it too. From the times when it doesn't work, when you can't do it. You can still you're still reflecting and learning whether it may you may not be getting what you want, but you're still it's still still uh, you're learning from it. You're still developing just in the same way, whether it, no matter how good or, or bad it might seem. In in uh, in things like uh, learn to do daily chores in a more meditative way, like washing the dishes or doing little things like that, in a way that you can. That you you kind of put your your attention onto what you're doing. You can use the sound of silence or something to to empty your mind and kind of focus on just the uh, the doing of some simple task. So that you you're learning how to just do something and keep your mind with what you're doing. Because uh, like we can do be washing the dishes and then be thinking about something else, listening to the radio or or just planning our next holiday, doing something, uh, anything, but thinking and thinking, um, or thinking, oh, dishes every day, I have to wash these things. And uh, one can complain about it, but actually these kind of daily chores are quite good for meditation. Sweeping, washing the dishes, Scrubbing the floor, cleaning the windows—all these things are are quite useful for meditation. In your professional life, when you go to work, you can also you can uh, learn, you know, to contemplate the kind of job that you have, how it affects your mind. Like if you're uh, a computer programmer, if you're uh, a lecturer in a university, if you're uh, working in a factory, or if you're a school teacher, or if you're uh, whatever, you know, an accountant, or whatever, whatever you, you do to, to earn a living, uh, just begin to note how it affects your, your conscious experience. How like talking on the phone, or working with a computer, or or having to counsel people, or things like this. How it how it just observe how it affects your mind. At the end of the day, what do you feel like? Just to to note, not to criticize, just to see uh, that that doing this kind of thing, you get this kind of result. And because then you. You're, and, and accept the result. Though you're not, you're not thinking you shouldn't be feeling the way you're, you are, or that there's something wrong with you. Just note that this is, say, for example, if you, uh, if, if I have to talk a lot during the day, or counsel people, or teach, um, you know, where the mind is active, and, and or you're attending committee meetings and all that. Then at the end of the day, I can observe what the result of that, and it's just to notice that the state of the mind is like this. 
it's not generally you feel kind of tired and 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 uh, you have you know feeling of certain type of feeling from having been involved in planning and talking and listening and all that and it and you note this the way it is then you can notice when like uh, when, when when these things are are not present you're not trying to because we tend to complain or get just you know when we say uh, we get from our you know, when our minds get to a certain level of of confusion or stress and that, then we tend to complain about it rather than just observe it. It's like this. If we begin to drop the complaining side, then it's more of accept the feeling of it, then it's much better. You know, you just feel much better. Where the complaining really is the, is the hard part, where the really really wears you out. I mean, I start complaining and I'm tired, even if I haven't done anything. Complaining is, is just very enervating. So we notice, I mean, notice these things, how the, the kind of uh, way you, the people you have to work with, how to you know how to uh, not make problems about it because we we can really be very reactive or very have a lot of emotional uh, problems around the people that we have to work with. We can make create a lot of stress in our mind about not wanting them to be like this or being uh, feeling that somebody's not doing what they should or that somebody doesn't like you, or, or they, these might all be true, you know. In any situation, there's always, you know, different types of people exist. Like in the Sangha, here at Amravati, or people that come and stay, or you get kind of certain people that complain a lot, certain people that get in there and work hard, certain people that are always there on time, you know, certain people that are always coming in late, certain people that are, you know, always volunteering certain people that never volunteer for anything and uh, and then you you can you can find yourself always kind of making problems you know about person never volunteers that person those men they just grumble and complain and badmouth the sangha and, and go on like this um, but also we can realize that this is life that in society in any collection of people that these these kind of things are the way it is. I've never been in a place where everybody is, uh, you know, is is all doing, you know, what what you think they should be. Why is that? You know, why why can't people be the way I want them to be, <laughs> or be what I think they should be? You know. The, then you realize that life is like this. It, it has these different types, different people are very quick, some people are very slow, some people are very shy and timid, other people are very aggressive and confident, other people are, are, are so caught up in their own problems they, they don't know what's happening, other people are very sensitive to everything around them, and it's just, it's just life, it's the way this human realm is. So that when we observe this, then we we can kind of accept it for what it is. We needn't make, you know, dwell in aversion and resentment about people that we think shouldn't be the way they are. Because that's exhausting too, to think that person shouldn't be like that. It's terrible and we can really feel indignant and angry and resentful and and we're suffering over what somebody or somebody else is like, and and so you know we, we're creating suffering around the the these kind of things. When we we needn't do that. We can more or less see that we do the best we can, and we 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 do what we can in the best way, and we encourage others to to rise up to situations, but. It's not a demand. It's not. We we don't have to to kind of 
It's not up to us to, to make everyone become what we think they should. It's impossible anyway, and you just and and the more you try to force people, the more stubborn they become. So you learn from this about learning how to, you know, work with what you've got, the the people around you, the the way you are. And it's not a, a kind of uh, just a, a passive kind of fatalistic acceptance of life. It is a very positive uh, embracing of life to to be able to not make it in, not make it stressful, even though there might be stressful things in it. You're not creating stress from your from unskillful reactions to it, and that's important to be able to realize how to respond to, to life and how to relate to it in a way that that you're in control of it. You're not just being overwhelmed and, and lost in it and just caught up in, in, in your own reactions, emotional reactions, and, and, uh, and a victim of it. We can more and more as we contemplate and watch and observe how things are, then we are quite capable of adapting and of also of creating possibilities for other people to change. But one thing I found in, uh, like in military life, when I was in the Navy, it was like, it was all this, you obey the rules and, and, and then, you know, it's, it's commands from, the, from above and it's, uh, everybody is, you know, if you're, if you're not conforming, then you're, you're punished or humiliated. In the naval training I went through, they had to go through this, they called boot camp, 13 weeks of this, they took us, we all came from all over the states to this naval base in San Diego. We were all teenage boys. We arrived in a, you know, all put into one place and then we went to the barber and they shaved our heads. And they put us, they took away all our clothes and put us in these ill-fitting dungarees. We all came out looking like plucked chickens. <laughs> And in these baggy dungarees and shaven head like like convicts and uh, anyway we, when we went we were all from from the south and from some you know with kind of greasy hair and others with funny looking clothes and who knows what and then we all and they they make us all look the same almost like the same miserable thing and they and then uh, and then they proceed to to intimidate us and call us terrible names. So they start yelling at you and, and telling you you're stupid and idiot. They use terrible language. And you get used to that. And, and then you learn how to conform and how to do things, how to march in step, how to... Because you're rewarded and punished accordingly. You're, it's the reward and punishment conditioning. And they make you into a, you know, kind of a company of men that, that, that can do things all together. And that's the aim of the military, isn't it? To, you want to, you want everyone to be together doing, to work together. And you don't want a bunch of kind of individuals and eccentrics, each one doing their own thing. <laughs> so you have to knock that out of them to, to get them all to, you know, to, to work as one one company. And you do that through intimidation, through pressure, social pressure, through, through rewards and through punishments. Now in, uh, say, in, in meditation now, or in, say, in, in monastic life, uh, say on the level that we live life, it's, uh, one finds that there's a tendency to want to do this, to try to you know, almost a military, you know, if you've been in the military, you tend to have that tendency anyway to, to, to act like that. <laughs> because there's certain similarities. Each one of us has a uniform, shaven head, and <laughs> we've got rules and high standards, you know, and you, also, you want everybody to march in step and be together and, 
and then you but and then that is but then you realize that if you're using reward and punishment intimidation and social pressure what this he might as well go back into the military so what is the point of of the of a buddhist uh, sangha is it's different isn't it and this is where you begin to realize you're not here to kind of to to make a kind of fighting unit of monks <laughs> but <laughs> to provide standards to reflect from to to give like moral moral guidelines moral standards such as the precepts and then the, then the conventions and the traditional are there to 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 guide and to support and to encourage but it, but it's not to be a kind of uh, reward and punishment an intimidation scene and so we in this way we 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 have you know the monks and the nuns are very eccentric people here They're all a bit eccentric and odd in their own way, and and, and so you. <laughs> and if you want them to, to kind of go into one kind of conforming fighting unit, you give up. It's hopeless. <laughs> so so that the then you you realize that that's a good thing because, but what you are is encouraging people to observe and and to, it's like growing up. It's a kind of maturing, where you. You're giving you're giving people the the right to look and investigate to observe as best they can. You can't make them do it. You you can't say you've got to observe and be mindful and and when you do the dishes you've got to be mindful of the dishes. <laughs> I could pop into the kitchen and say, Are you being mindful of doing all you're doing the dishes? And and, uh, and intimidate them and frighten them into kind of maybe doing things in silence and and fear <laughs> but uh, what's the point of that I mean you know it's not, that's not a, what what we're here for and what we're here for then is to is to provide uh, a, a venue or a situation uh, conventions forms places where mindfulness is encouraged And so, in the monastery, you do have you set up around this. So you, you know, the the Buddha images, everything in a monastery, Buddhist monastery, has some kind of. It's pointing, you know, it's trying to. You, you, it's very easy to see the, the uh, supporting conditions here. When you go out of here, of course, you can't expect that. Because then you, you're living in a society that doesn't meditate, isn't mindful. Uh, that is very much into pleasure-seeking, uh, wasting time, killing time, distracting yourself, uh, or intimidating you, or putting pressure on you, and rewarding or punishing you. So that the this is this is a, a society uh, as it tends to be. So and not to complain about that or think it should be otherwise, because then we. We we f- we feel maybe despair at, at 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 our lives because we can see it as as hopeless if we think about it too much. But recognize that we we don't expect the 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 lay world, the ordinary world, to to be like a monastery. So we accept it for what it is, and we observe the way it is. Get to kind of open to it, watch it, listen to it. So you. You know what it is, uh, and without complaining or without being intimidated or or fascinated by it, and that's through just listening to to it and and watching how it affects you, and learning like from your from the way you're feeling and the suffering that you create around it. Now, during this retreat, many of you experience maybe strong negative reactions or emotions and. Things like this, and and I always see this as a good thing because that's what you want. You want to bring up things in people. So 
You're not trying to, to force them, but just restraint and all these things will will bring up various uh, emotional states, and, and uh, so that in and when you're silent too for such a long time, uh, there's a lot of we we dissipate a lot of things through speaking. You can see, like eating and, and speaking. We can we can people that have a lot of fear and a lot of anger and a lot of frustration oftentimes eat a lot and speak a lot because you can just you, you come out that's your safety valve that's how you release the tensions just chatting and, and uh, or eating things drinking uh, and so when when those things are when you can't do those things in the way that you can in your ordinary life then then suddenly you're confronted maybe with the anger that you wouldn't be confronted with if you could eat something or chat to your friends the way you're used to or watch the television. So like on a meditation retreat, notice that these things, you know, that these renunciation precepts are to give you a kind of reference so that you can observe what your mind does when you don't have all those kind of distractions or things available to you. You can't just act like you do when you're at, at home. And then the, the, you can see a lot of the frustration, anger, or thing arising in the mind. And this is, this is like a, but see it as not as something wrong with you, but as an opportunity to let go of this. I see every time we, we let into our consciousness things mindfully, that's a way of letting go, of releasing not a, a, a failure or something going wrong with us, but an actual purification is taking place. If you look at it in the right way, you, you, can, you can see it as something good that's happening rather than you been, haven't been meditating rightly or you wouldn't be feeling like this. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's, it's learning to see that, that like anger repressed anger or bitterness or that is when it comes up in the meditation you're sitting here and you find yourself suddenly enraged or or full of resentment about the past and, and then you can you can think I came here to this retreat to get some peace and I, all I do is get this terrible anger and, and then you how do I get rid of it? I don't want it. And that's the uh, that's the reaction to it. That's what you've always done with it, isn't it? Trying to get rid of it. So changing the attitude towards it and seeing that as what arises now is it's impermanent, it's not self, and so you can you're willing to feel it and, and let it be. And it's like then it's it's letting go of it. You're you're releasing that from your mind. You're not just holding it down inside, letting it kind of fulminate and simmer away inside as you usually do. You're actually letting these things out. So I call it mental purification. I found the sound of silence very helpful too in in uh, in busy situations. If you if you sometimes you can't hear it uh, in, uh, but you know, except in very silent conditions. But you actually, when you begin to know that sound, and then you keep you try to keep listening for it, even in the midst of traffic or. And I'm I've, I'm now so good at it that. I have an exercise, I have a rowing machine in my room. And uh, usually when I do this rowing exercise, the machine makes this strong noise so I can't hear the sound of silence. But now, I can hear the sound of silence while I'm doing this rowing exercise. It's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> 
just by my training myself to listen. Uh, and uh, because it's a kind of strong mechanical noise and and usually can't seems to drown out those kind of noises drown out the sound of silence. But there's but you keep don't don't believe that you can't hear it. It's just learning to listen a little more in a little more subtle way. So so that uh, that's a way of, of kind of using uh, maybe uh, rather annoying or uh, noisy or unpleasant situations just as a way of get uh, because I found the sound of sounds very helpful in in kind of lifting getting your mind out of just being reactive and, and uh, or just being caught up into uh, wandering thoughts and or just emotional reactions by by focusing on that and then uh, it helps to to kind of center and be with what you're doing more and more and and also very useful in a in a situation that is maybe unpleasant in itself to to keep you from just shutting it out out of aversion or or just uh, reacting in a in an unskillful way to it to an unpleasant situation. And sometimes life is just, uh, some things we have to do in life and the experience are just very unpleasant. That's part of life. We can't expect life to be always pleasant. Like waiting in traffic jams and, or waiting in queues or, or, uh, Difficult committee meetings and all these things are can be grist for the mill if we're if we're kind of willing to kind of use some banya or wisdom and uh, figure out how to how to deal with these with these uh, aspects of life that are without just being averse to them or or without being uh, with our mini without you kind of just suppressing our feelings. We're not just trying to suppress our feelings, but trying to, to acknowledge the feeling, but not be caught indulging in it or in suppressing it. So this takes this, this ability to investigate and learn and watch and consider how to, how to work with the things that we find ourselves, that we have, the, the work that we do, the people that we live with. This all takes Satipanya, mindfulness and wisdom. So we can see that it's that that uh, as we begin to appreciate this more, then the the mundane life that we live, we can see in more of a way of of a challenge to us to kind of look at it and maybe change our attitude towards it and towards ourselves and and how to how to accept things. And how to work with difficult things, or and how to to uh, do all this as a part of our meditation practice. It's it's, it's you 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 develop a lot of wisdom, and uh, and also to live find yourself much happier and calm person, and also find that you know that at least. If other people are causing a lot of problems, you aren't. Because we can't help what others do, but we can. We have do. We do. We can have. You know, we do have some say about what we do. Remember going to this Mahayana monastery in California about ten years ago, the city of ten thousand Buddhas, and it's a Chinese uh, Chinese master, Master Shunhua, who who ha- who took over the uh, Northern California State Mental Hospital, which was closed by Ronald Reagan when he was governor of California in 1968. And this Chinese Buddhist uh, uh, group bought this whole this huge complex of buildings 
60, 70 big buildings were hospital wards and a, and a and a, the prison, psychiatric prison for the criminally insane. That's where the monks live. It's <laughs> a gruesome place. <laughs> and they, uh, and anyway, this, I was, uh, I was taken to meet the Master Hua, and, and then I went up, he invited me to this, this was in San Francisco, and then he took me up to the city of 10,000 Buddhas, which is a couple of hours drive north of San Francisco. So, and up there, and uh, and I mean, I was very impressed with Master Hua, and I was very kind of sympathetic with it all. But I noticed that when I tended to go into a different tradition, there I'd have a certain kind of resistance to it, and because they bow different, they have to, you have to kind of, you don't get down on your knees and bow like we do. You you stand up, and then you drop down on your knees, and then you bow your head, and then you stand up again. much more kind of uh, like an exercise. And of course, they have different kind of robes. When you're wearing these kind of robes and you're, and you're kind of having to stand up and then drop down on the floor again and stand up again, your robes start falling off. And, <laughs> and then, they, then they, they're very uh, ceremonial. Chinese love ceremonies. And they have one ceremony after another. And it's in Chinese. And, you, and so you, you can feel yourself not liking that, and uh, well, I don't have to do that. I'm Theravada, and and you can see the whole kind of way the mind was was just that it's kind of being tolerant in one way, taking an interest, but also being quite aloof from it, not wanting to get into it at all. So, and they were pretty reasonable about it. And I had quite a nice time. So I went back again a year later, and and. Uh, then I was being still the same way. I still kind of participated, but only in certain things, and kind of kept my my priorities to myself, and and didn't uh, didn't really, you know, and 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 I could kind of be aloof and and quite critical of some of the things they were doing. And then I saw what I was doing. I saw that that I wouldn't really understand how they practiced until I really did it like they do. So, next time I went, I was there for a couple of weeks, and I decided to learn how to bow exactly like they do, how to chant in the Chinese style, and uh, and attend all these ceremonies. And they, they're all, like, they walk in lines chanting mantras. When you go to eat, you have to go in this line and you chant, and you have to walk, and you have to wait, and you're always chanting mantras everywhere. And, uh, and so I decided to just go along with the whole thing. So I did. And uh, after two weeks of that, it's very strange the effect of, of, of all that chanting, all this continuous chanting, chanting in lines, and then this bowing. And of course, in Chinese Mahayana Buddhism, they put every, and they have some of the, a lot of it translated into English like we do here. And they, they'd always talk in superlatives about this is the most and utterly complete and perfect and 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 so everything they, they talk in in kind of superlative forms. Everything is ultimate and absolute and utterly perfect and so forth. So after a while just the effect of the superlative chanting and superlative language suddenly I started looking around me this this uh, big hall that they, they had their ceremonies in, and, and uh, it lo- began to look like the Western paradise. And so suddenly the, the kind of effect of the, of, the, of the ceremony and the reflections and everything began to kind of sink in to the mind, and then in this kind of aloof, critici- critical way I used to regard it. I mean, I mean, I wasn't letting that take hold. I began to understand what they were doing. And, uh, and that was really quite an insight for me to see that it wasn't just their attachment to rites and rituals and just being Chinese and the way one can, can kind of dismiss or put things down because they're different than what you're used to. And, and uh, so I could see that there was a kind of, there was a, a value to it that, 
And it what did, uh, if you really kind of gave yourself to it, it had a, a very powerful effect on how you saw things, how you and and it was it was quite good effect. It was a very pleasing effect. So that's an example of just you know how the mind can when we're when we're confronted with things that we don't quite understand how we can and we can see ourselves going into this state of resisting or critical criticalness and whatnot, which is has its value at times. But also if that's our reaction to life, it then we have a lot of, we're always kind of, we kind of miss out on a lot because we, we can't give ourselves anything. So, in, uh, in the holy life, like in, with, with uh, meditation, with, with uh, monastic life, or with, with practice and all these things, if we do it only in, in a kind of half-hearted uh, uh, way of, of not really putting our, whole self into it, then we get half-hearted results. And when we, we kind of really put ourselves into it, and, uh, uh, but not in a kind of blind and, and uh, foolish way, but just to really learn it, and to, we, it, it, then it begins to, the, the whole thing begins to kind of integrate and come together as a, as a, in a good way, to increase and help us in our practice in understanding of Dhamma. So now you can remember we we are all back on noble silence and uh, for another two days. And then on Sunday, we'll give you the five precepts so that before you leave, before you leave Amrabhat, you get the five precepts, which means you can talk and you can have dinner and all the rest. <laughs> and you can dance and sing. And you can... <laughs> And you can sleep on high, luxurious beds. <laughs> but if you don't take the five precepts before you go, and you go without taking the five precepts, remember that you're still on the eight precepts. 